0: If you have your copy of God's Word, I want to encourage you to please open it to the book of Hebrews. This morning we'll be in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. This is the start of a series that will take us through the end of December, focusing on the book of Hebrews. Now, I'm not preaching through verse by verse. Instead, we'll be looking at different sections that focus upon the meaning of the Incarnation. Taking a look at why did Jesus have to come? Why was he born as a babe? Why did he experience all the things that we experience in life? So this is a series I'm entitling A Very Hebrews Christmas. The book of Hebrews is a great word of encouragement. Now, I'm going to give you a little background, and you'll probably hear this again throughout the month because I want us to keep in mind the purpose for which this, I believe it was a sermon, was preached. Now, the book of Hebrews is clearly written to a people that know the Jewish faith. It's believed the church to whom it was written had come out of the Jewish faith. They were primarily Jews that had come to believe in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I mean, the things that the preacher goes into in Hebrews would not be something a person would know unless they were steeped in the Jewish faith. I mean, after all, not many of us as Gentiles know a whole lot about Melchizedek. Exactly. But yet the author of Hebrews spends an entire chapter talking about how Jesus is better than Melchizedek. Now, what was going on is believed to be this. Persecution was starting to increase. Christians were suffering for their faith. Now, at this time, the Jewish faith had been grandfathered in by the Roman government. So what that meant was, if you were a Jew you would not be persecuted. However, if you were a Christian, you would be persecuted. So the temptation was very real for these believers to forsake their faith in Jesus Christ and to revert back to Judaism. I mean, think about it. The heat's starting to get turned up if you're a follower of Christ, but if you keep to the Jewish faith and the Jewish tradition, you'll be fine. So I believe that whomever the author was preached this sermon to remind them of the superiority of Jesus. The Jewish faith was pointing to Jesus. He is the fulfillment. There's nothing better than Jesus, not angels, not Abraham, not high priest, not the sacrifices that were made in the Old Testament. So he's saying that even though you suffer for following Christ, if you turn your back on him, where else will you find salvation? You're going backwards. So as this sermon begins in Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, these four verses really are the introduction, setting the stage for what is to come. Many of the themes that we will touch on today are expounded later in this sermon. So hear with me as I read, follow in your text, your copy of God's Word, Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Father, this morning we gather to praise the name, the only name in heaven and upon the earth by which we can be saved. So we gather, Lord, thanking you for your grace, thanking you for Jesus, who didn't consider equality with you something to be grasped and held on to, but willingly made himself nothing by taking the form of a servant. And becoming obedient. And thank you, Lord, that he was obedient even to the point of death upon a cross. And Father, I pray for not only this morning, but in the Sundays ahead as we take a look at the beauty of Jesus. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to have a depth to our celebration this year that goes beyond the mere superficial We confess that it's very easy to get lost in the trappings of the Christmas celebration. So Lord, I pray this morning that you will work within us. That we will remain focused on the meaning of Christmas. Help us to glory in Jesus, our Lord and Savior. For it is in his name that I pray. And the church said, Amen. There have been few musicians as popular as Elvis Presley. Now, during the heyday of Elvis's popularity in the early 70s, Elvis would still frequent a restaurant in Memphis. Now, although he often had to go maybe after hours, it was one that he had built a relationship with even before he was famous. Lil Thompson's Steakhouse. As he was up and coming and trying to earn his name in the music field, she would often give him free food because he was a struggling young artist. And over that period, they built a friendship that was maintained up until his death. It came a time when Lil decided that to gain a little popularity and advertisement that she was going to host a contest for Elvis impersonator. Well, being a friend of of Lil's, Elvis decided that he would not only show up that night, but he would enter the contest. So the king came into the building, talking with Lil behind the scenes. He said, I think I'm going to win this, he said with confidence. When it came his turn, he got up on the stage, presented a rendition of Love Me Tender that was, was just, it was Elvis. And won third place. Everybody was shocked when they found out that he was really in the building. The king was there. And no one recognized him. Maybe it was their expectations. Elvis Presley in this steakhouse at an Elvis impersonator contest? No, you've got to be kidding. Or maybe in their minds they thought what Elvis was really like. And because when he came in such a way, no one recognized him. And the question I'm getting at is this. I wonder if that could happen with us and God. That God's in the building, but we don't recognize him. Could we miss him because we really don't think God would be present? Could we miss Jesus because of our, our expectations of who he is and what he is really like? Because we have preconceived ideas. In 2006, sociologist at Baylor University researched America's understanding of God. Working with the Gallup organization, they researched asking Americans questions about what they thought about God, what God was like. And what they found is that America really had four different views of God that were really pretty divided evenly among the population. You see, some believe in the authoritarian God. This is a God of authority that is angry at sin. He's engaged in everyday life and human affairs, but the authoritative God is not happy at all. Emphasis on angry God, de-emphasis on joy. On the other end of the spectrum were the Americans who believe in the benevolent God. See, they believe that God is not angry. He's just all joy and all love. And therefore, this is a God who is forgiving and accepting. This is a God who turns no one away from heaven whatsoever. Some Americans view God as the critical God. Judgmental. Quick to point out a wrong, but he's not engaged in human affairs other than knowing what is wrong and shaking his head at it and clicking his teeth going... And others believed in the distant God. This is the God who is simply a cosmic force who they believe created the world and said it's spinning like a child's top on the floor and then just stepped away to watch things play out. The authoritative God, the benevolent God, the critical God, the distant God. Where do these views come from? What has shaped their views of who God is? What has shaped our views of who God is? If I were to ask you, how do you understand God? What is God like? What would you base your answer on? Hebrews 1, 1 through 4 teaches us that Jesus shows us clearly and fully who God is and what he is like. We need to look no further than Jesus to understand God. Look in verse 1. Long ago at many times in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Now this is stated as fact. The author is not making a case that God spoke. He's not trying to convince us that God has revealed himself. In fact, he states emphatically that God has chosen to reveal himself, and that revelation is an act of grace. Keep in mind that had God not chosen to reveal himself, you and I would not be able to figure out who God is. He is so much higher than we are that our minds cannot grasp The barrier of sin has created such a gulf that we would not know God unless God initiated spanning that gulf to let us know who he is. Now, the preacher of Hebrews begins by looking back. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke. How did God reveal himself? Through the prophets. Now, it's clear that God spoke in their preaching. We, we have a majority of the prophets preaching recorded here in the Old Testament. The prophets came preaching the word of God, calling the people to repent. We can hear the voice of Amos thundering, let justice roll like the mighty waters. We can hear Habakkuk preaching that even though the crops may fail, and even though we may have not have food in the barn, yet I will worship God. We can hear Isaiah preaching to the the people in the royal court saying, what are your sacrifices unto me, your new moon festivals? Oh, the prophets came preaching, delivering the word of God. But the prophets also spoke through their actions. Notice he says he spoke to our fathers in many times and in many ways. A thorough reading of the Old Testament reveals that God revealed himself not only in what the prophets spoke, but in the, as they acted. Moses holding up his staff for victory and action saying that if God is lifted up, he will draw people to him. Do you recognize that Isaiah was given a very odd command? Get ready for this. Isaiah was commanded by God. To strip all of his clothes off and to walk around naked for 40 days. Thank you, Lord, that some callings pass me by. He wanted to show people that God was stripping away the pretense. So God gave him a very unique action to do. The prophet Jeremiah was told by God to wear a yoke. To take a a, a yoke that would be worn on oxen. And to strap it on his shoulders and to go into the king's presence wearing this yoke to demonstrate that they were about to be placed under bondage. Ezekiel was given commands to cook his dinner over manure to show that a siege was coming up on Jerusalem. They preached in their actions. And God spoke through them not only in their voices and in their actions, but through the miracles he performed. Moses parting the Red Sea, standing before the burning bush. When God says that he spoke in many ways, he meant it. Did you know that God spoke through a donkey in the book of Numbers? Yet in each way that God revealed himself, voice, action, miracle. In the Old Testament, it was still incomplete. It was like a brush stroke missing from a painting. An ingredient, something was, was missing, an ingredient was lacking in the meal. A musical note was out of place. So God decided to speak finally and definitively in Jesus. Look in verse 2. But in these last days... Now, last days is not just a reference to the immediate time frame they're in. The last days speaks of the time in which God brings his plan of redemption to culmination. Jesus inaugurated the last days with his death and resurrection. The final times, the final age. So if somebody asks you, are we living in the last days? We can say, yes, we are. We've been living in the last days for 2,000 years. Because in Jesus, God inaugurated the culmination of his plan. So now he spoke in these last days, how? By his son. We take for granted to say that Jesus is the son of God. It's a phrase that speaks of understanding God relationally. We believe in the Trinity. Father, Son, and Spirit. Three distinct, yet one, equal, all God. So when it says that Jesus is the Son of God, it is not speaking in any way as if to say that Jesus is inferior to God. Instead, it is speaking relationally that Jesus and God are equals, but they are understood in relationship that has lasted in eternity. Furthermore, to say that Jesus is the Son of God means that Jesus reveals who God is. Remember, a Hebrewism that is found throughout the Old and the New Testaments is to take the phrase son of and to add it with something to describe the character of someone. Sons of thunder is what Jesus referred to John and James as. Speaking of a hot temper. They were were men that were easy to fly off the handle. That was their characteristic. So when it says that Jesus is the Son of God, it's saying that Jesus reveals the character of God more than any other. In Jesus, compared to the prophets, it was like going from the black and white televisions of the early 60s to going to today with 75-inch 4K ultra-high-definition TVs. The vision of God became much more clear. Now, to demonstrate Jesus' qualifications, he lists two bona fides. Look at him in verse 2. He spoke to us by his son, first, whom he appointed the heir of all things. An heir is the one who receives property upon the father's death. And in the time in which this is written, it was the firstborn son who would receive that. It points again to the sonship of Christ. It's as if he is saying, if you doubt that God has sent Jesus as his son, if you doubt Jesus is the son of God, look, Jesus is the inheritor of all things that he received upon his death and resurrection. Not only that, he tells us in verse 2, through whom he also created the world. There was never a time when Jesus was not. John 1, one. in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus was not only present at creation, He was active in it. Father and Son working together to bring about all that is, relationally. One of the landmarks of New York City is the Brooklyn Bridge. Built in 1885, at the time it was opened, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world, spanning 5,998 feet. The greatest engineer in America at that time was a man by the name of John Roebling. He was tasked with designing and overseeing the construction of the bridge. John knew this would be an incredible task. So he didn't start out to do it alone. He reached out to his son, Washington Roebling. And his son became the co-engineer and the co-builder. In many ways, what happened with the Roeblings and the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge simply was a, a, a side, an illustration of what happened with the father and the son. God was not lacking in any way. That he works relationally in creation, creating through Jesus. So how does Jesus show us God? Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God. Radiance speaks of image or light. And the question has always been, when it speaks of the radiance, that image of God's glory, is it saying that Jesus is a reflection of God's glory? Like the moon is the reflection of the sun's light. Or is Jesus like the sun itself emanating the rays of light? I believe that the emphasis is upon the fact that Jesus is the source of God's glory. He is God in the flesh. And as such, he reveals God in ways that nothing else can. Not simply reflecting the glory of God, but demonstrating it in his being. Now we know according to the scripture that all of creation testifies about the glory of God. The beautiful trees that we've seen, the leaves testify of the glory of God. Creation speaks of a creator who is glorious. Take, for example, the tiny hummingbird. This little bird that sometimes is just a little larger than a few inches can hover, fly backwards, and even fly upside down. The wings beat at more than 60 times a second. If we were as active as a hummingbird, we would need 155,000 calories per day. In other words, a Thanksgiving meal every day. That little bird shows the glory of God. See if man can design something that can fly backwards. Remove that fast. But even that tiny hummingbird that speaks of the greatness of God falls short in demonstrating God's glory like Jesus does. Jesus shows the radiance of God's glory in ways that creation cannot. Why? Look again at verse 3. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. He is the exact impression. That word imprint speaks of an image on a coin or the impression left by a seal. When it says the exact imprint of his nature, the nature means the substance, the essential reality of something. Jesus leaves no doubt as to who God is and what God is like. What is the character of God like? Look at Jesus. He rebukes the Pharisees in their self-righteous arrogance, yet he weeps with Mary she is broken of spirit. He clears the temple of those who are trying to make profit off peddling things. And those who come to worship. He clears them, turning over tables. Yet he welcomes children who are insignificant and humble. He picks them up and he blesses them. He confronts the prideful. Yet he converses with a woman that's been broken by the sins in her life. John 1.14 says that we have beheld his glory. Glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. That's the character of God. What's the glory of God like? I would point you to two mountains to see his glory. One's called the Mount of Transfiguration. Where for just a few moments the, the veil of flesh was was moved away and the glory of Jesus emanated. The glory of God radiated out from him literally and physically, and it was so beautiful. What did Peter, James, and John say? Let's build tents so we can stay here. Well, that's the glory of God. But the Mount of Transfiguration is not the only mountain where the glory of God's displayed. Mount Calvary shows us His glory also. The glory of grace and holiness. The glory of love that suffers in order to redeem the beloved. That's the glory of God. What is the power of God like? He changes water to wine. He causes the lame to walk, the blind to see, the dead to live, and He forgives sin. And if all that wasn't enough, look at what else Jesus does. Verse 3, he upholds the universe by the word of his powerful, or by his powerful word. All this is laying the case that Jesus is God. Not only does God speak and create, he speaks and he upholds. That word upholds means sustains, keeps things together. Scientists and geologists estimate that the world weighs 13,170 billion trillion pounds. That's how much the earth weighs. I can't grasp that. My question is this. If the earth weighs 13,170 billion trillion pounds, why are we not falling? How are we held in space? Gravity? Gravity? Or is it the word of Jesus that says, keep floating there and spinning around till I say stop? And it does. He upholds us by the word of his power. Because of all this, Jesus is worthy of worship. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a position of authority. Enthroned with God in heaven. Now, verse 4 moves on to make the transition to what will be addressed next week, how Jesus is superior to angels. See, no angel is enthroned at the right hand of God. And it's interesting, he says, after making purification for sins, that's the language of atonement, forgiveness. It speaks of the ascension and that Jesus has seated, completing the work of redemption. No other sacrifice is needed. No other atonement can be given. The debt has been paid. In 2009, Pastor John Ortberg and his wife Nancy visited Azusa Pacific University. His wife was there to speak at the the commencement ceremonies. Their daughter was graduating. and The night before the, the graduation ceremonies, they were invited to a small gathering of about 50 people. It was donors who were there celebrating their 50th class reunion. There were other faculty members and administration there. And toward the end of the event, the president of the university, John Wallace, brought in three students who were getting ready to graduate the next day. The president said, students, I wanted to share with you some good news. A donor has made a gift in each of your names. And he looked at the first student and he said, you are graduating with a debt of $105,000. $105,000. That debt's been paid in full. He looked at the second student. You would be graduating tomorrow with a debt of 70000 That debt has been paid. He looked at the third one and said, You would have had a debt of $130,000. That debt has been paid. Do you think for that moment in that room there were some smiles and some happy students and faces saying, What? The debt's been paid and someone, I don't even know, has stepped forward and paid this debt for me? Church, that is exactly what Christ has done for us. He has paid the debt that we owed God, not only erasing the sins against us, but purifying us. Notice what he says there. He made purification for our sins. We are not only forgiven, we are made right pure and holy before God because of what Jesus did on the cross. There's no doubt that God has done this. And this is just the introduction of the book. Jesus shows us who God is. T.F. Torrance is a theologian of the 20th century. He's a young man. He served England in World War II as a chaplain. While they were in Italy, he was there with a mortally wounded soldier. The young man was 19 years old and was dying. The young soldier looked up at T.F. Torrance and said, Padre, is God really like Jesus? Now, Torrance realized that behind this question was, was this Is the God that we meet on the other side of death the same one who came as a baby? This dying soldier was afraid of what God would be like. He was afraid that he wouldn't be like Jesus. And Torrance replied, God is indeed really like Jesus. There is no unknown God behind the back of Jesus for us to fear. To see the Lord Jesus is to see the very face of God. We celebrate his birth because he is God Incarnate. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me, if you will. I ask you today if you know this Jesus in a saving relationship, is there a time where you've turned from your sins and said, Lord, I believe, save me? If there's never a time that you have done that, I invite you this morning to come forward when we sing. I'll be glad to pray with you, and I'll ask you just to have a seat on the front row and then. When the service is over, we'll sit down and talk more about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. I recognize that many of you have already placed your faith in Christ. This may be a day where you need to come again face to face with Jesus. Maybe you feel like your faith has grown cold. And today in these four verses... The Spirit of God has reminded you of who Jesus is and that He is worthy of your devotion. Father, as we bow our heads before You, we thank You for Your grace. We thank You that in Jesus we see who You are. Lord, that's a mystery we can't fully comprehend, yet it is true. For that we glorify Your name. Lord, thank You. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.